Hello, everyone. Is that Weems guy actually back to do an episode of my very own show? How about that? It's only been like a month since I've done an episode. Uh, thanks to Hearn and Holshin and and everybody else who sat in on the last one. I think it was Tim Burke and uh, Randy Harris. I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. But everybody who sat in on the last episode. And we had a milestone. The podcast feed has now gone over 100,000 plays. Now, that does not include the numbers from YouTube plays, and I don't know what those are. Uh, but we've crossed the 100,000 mark uh, for podcast episodes. So, Brian, does that make us certified gold now? I do believe so. And it might have slowed down enough. I cracked 100,000, and now it's like 200,000 is off. It's a big jump, but uh, congratulations. A hundred thousand is a big milestone. That means that the average listener has listened to you more than most of your family members have your entire <laughs> life. So that does not surprise me at all. When that occurred to me, I went, Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Uh, y'all should be recognizing uh, that voice. That is Brian with a Y Eastridge. Uh, and yeah. I will he and I will be talking about stuff shortly um, after I have other big news to share with you. Um, well, first, let me kind of explain what's been going on, why I've been here for like a month with a live episode of my own. Uh, as you all know, I've been graduate school, tenured David Kegel, um, and just had a couple of weekends where the only time I could work on an assignment was on a Sunday, and I was, you know, up to the wire on that just could not stop to record an episode and since i'm paying a lot of money in tuition for the graduate school classes and i get a grade on this and i kind of figured that was a little more important the other was i caught a crud that took me like a solid two weeks to even come back to the land to live in and i now know it was rsv virus and that's nasty stuff and um but i'm, I'm over that and I actually did my assignment for this week on Thanksgiving night so that I would have some time this weekend to try to get an episode in the books. Now for the big news. Uh, also, if you've been listening uh, or watching, you know I've been going through some professional turmoil over the last little while, and that has finally come to a crux to a certain degree uh, i am in the process of changing agencies i will do that this week and i'm not going to publicly disclose where i'm going to work because i am not going to be in a policy making or spokesman decision thankfully and i don't want to if i'm out saying something that it goes running back to my now who will be my bosses. What about your employee? I saying this. So I'm going to try to keep that uh, separate. Please uh, respect that. Uh, because if this starts to interfere with my work life, this will have to go away because I got to pay bills. Uh, I am staying in a law enforcement training capacity. I will say that. And uh, it's actually uh, pretty, pretty substantial move. Um, as far as like the agency is involved, I uh, want to be clear that I am leaving my current agency very amicably. Um, this is not an angry divorce whatsoever. This was, I was not happy and I didn't feel like I was contributing. And 
you know, the agency had created this spot for me and it just was not going the way the agency wanted as well. And so it actually, this other opportunity came up and it's allowing me to leave with my head held high and walking out, you know, not feeling like I'm a failure, that I'm actually going to something very positive and it's making me, it is allowing me to leave where the agency's not having to do ugly things. And so it's a win for everybody involved and it created an opportunity. Someone has already been promoted into my spot, very good opportunity for them. And, um, well, my spot as it was is going away. They got the rank that I'm giving up, got promoted to that. So good for uh, for some other people involved. If the agency gets a breath of fresh air, I get a breath of fresh air. It was extremely hard to make the transition from having been chief deputy to being back in a basically a line level position. It wasn't hard for me to give up being in charge or anything like that at all, but there was just some other things that were making it very difficult. There were some people in the public that still were calling me for things and that was creating awkward circumstances. There were a few people in the agency that now had the opportunity to, to twist forks and knives and pour salt on wounds that did not have the opportunity before. And they're still mad because they didn't get a car in 2011 or something along those lines. And it was their opportunity. And then there were some others that, uh, you know, it was hard for them to kind of recognize me as a peer and an equal like one of the other people of the same rank could not just would not call me by my first name I'm like dude we're the same rank is i can't do it i can't do it you were a chief when i came here and i, I just can't call you lee I'm like dude it's okay and just so it was like really awkward with stuff like that and it's just time uh it's just time and this gives me some flexibility down the road that i would not had if i stayed uh, with my current agency so again no hard feelings on my part and I'm leaving very amicably and hey how you doing Brian well good man I gotta tell you there are a lot of people out there that never they never reach the point they hold on to the point it's too long uh, and I, I've seen that for decades in law enforcement is like when all the signs are there that it's time to move, they hold on and then they leave because they have to, not because yeah. they have the ability to. Right. Um, and the other part of that is, you know, being in a training role at a certain point, you got to let other people take the reins. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially when you've built, um, when you've built your own system or your own uh, ideals and foundations, you know, to allow growth to happen. Sometimes you just got to get out of the way. And that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow, but, um, you know, the blessing is, uh, and Hanny McMood, when I retired from my agency, he said, man, at least you got to pick when you walked out the door Yeah. and, and he's like, a lot of guys don't have that luxury. And so I, I take it as a real blessing and I'm happy that you're moving on. Um, cause I, I know now you'll be a little less radio silent. So, uh, that's good. You know? I don't I, know. I uh, well, when I call about some esoteric thing, you'll at least you know I'll know you'll have the capacity and the time to take it here in the future. So, well, we'll see. Um, one of the things that I have enjoyed about the position that I'm leaving is that theoretically, it was much less public profile 
than the position that I was in. And once I finally got the reporter to realize I was no longer the PIO and to quit calling me and all that kind of stuff, I very much have enjoyed stepping away from that part of my life where everyone had access to me and, and a way to get to me and, uh, and having to constantly be available. And Sorry, so I'll put you on my calendar now if I need something. That's... <laughs> You know, when I, when I had my formal interview for this spot, uh, I told the big boss that I was cured from wanting to be in charge. And he looked over at somebody and said, write that answer down. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to not being responsible for anybody but me. There, uh, There's a lot to be said for that. And retirement, that is, uh, has been the case. Except that uh, next year I'm getting married, so oh, we'll have to. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. I, I knew you had told her that you weren't going to do that till you till you retired. And I've been kind of waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah. It's not completely official yet. So nobody okay. nobody blow the whistle on me. But yeah, we're, we're going to do a little jewelry shopping because we're both adults. And, yeah. you know, the whole surprise thing is kind of that was in your 20s. Yeah. So now we're we're approaching this the way I wish most people would, which is yeah. like with some common sense and yeah. uh, what do they call that uh, experience and knowledge yeah. behind us. So uh, yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, next year is only about thirty five days away. So, but it's also three hundred sixty five days long. So, <laughs> well, you know, three- if you get married on New Year's Eve this year, you can. Claim like the whole tax deduction for the whole year. Ooh. Yeah, we may have to have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, let me go back and back. I, I'll say I'll be responsible for myself. Yeah. And no, because I'll still will have like people that I'm training, people that, that kind of like. So I'll be responsible to them uh, and, and the like. But it's not going to be like, like it has been. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that. So I'm excited for you. It's uh this is a good move. And the timing was was just absolutely perfect. Um there was kind of an active pursuit on the other party's part when it was always nice to be recruited and wanted. And they didn't specifically set out to recruit me. Um, like, hey, we need to go get that guy. It was, I had a meeting with one of the bosses about something else. And he, then he kind of, in the middle of the meeting, he's like, hey, would you be interested in coming over? I actually kind of, yeah, I am. And some things fell into place. And uh, that happened. But enough of that vagary. We shall remove on. And uh, this isn't vague booking. It's vague podcasting, I guess. Vague cast. Vague casting. Vague casting. All right. Um I posted in the That Williams Guy Show group on Facebook. For those of you that are on Facebook, if you're not yet in there, hey, somebody give me show ideas for the night. And several people posted some questions, and we're going to, Brian and I will both take shots answering those and discussing those topics. And then we're going to go into Brian was just part of the uh, Revolver Roundup. And then he and Bulky have a new uh, venture in the works, and we'll get into that. Uh, first thing we'll talk about is uh, one of the questions was, uh, that I 
have mentioned that I don't have a light on my duty handgun and they want to know uh, what the reasoning behind that was. And if I have dedicated home defense weapons, do they have lights on them? So first, let me clarify that I, while I still go out and do cop things up until later this week, um, I have not been uniform patrol since 2009. So I wear soft uniform to work. I basically wear Duluth khakis and a polo shirt. Um, occasionally I put on the uniform and work a patrol shift and the like. I have been subject to call out a lot. And if I'm not actively going into buildings at dark places that, you know, looking for bad guys, I don't really see a point in the weapon light. To me, it just adds bulk. Uh, it makes holder, holster selection harder. It's just, I think there's some problems with a lot of the weapon light holsters out there that create openings where fingers and foreign objects can get into holsters and get your trigger guards. And to me, that's a bigger issue than the rare instance in which I may actually need a weapon-mounted light. As my mentor, Tom Givens, would say, it's got to be light enough for them to see you. So it's going to be light enough for you to see them. Now, there's the caveat of that, excuse me. Cops do go into buildings and darkness and the like. I just use handheld light to search in those instances. Um, because I don't want my muzzle and my flashlight being married to each other in those situations. Also, typically, if I'm going actively hunting bad guys... I have a rifle or a shotgun, and my handgun then becomes a secondary weapon. Um, I'm going to default to, uh, uh, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm getting old, and names of Larry. Mudgett? Yeah, Larry Mudgett's uh, definition of a handgun. You know, why do we carry it? We carry it to defend against sudden unexpected attack. Yeah, I've got lights on my long guns because I think that is necessary for a socially active long gun. But um, handgun is for if I got to suddenly fight and defend myself. It's not a proactive tool of any extent, in my opinion. Uh, as far as like dedicated home guns, yes, they have weapon lights on them because they're long guns. Yeah, much easier to uh, manipulate a long gun when you have the light attached to it as opposed to right. trying. There, you know, there are methods. Uh, there's some modified retention methods that you can use to deploy a handgun light with a rifle or a shotgun, uh, a pump shotgun. Have a light on that dude. It's not pleasant to run with a handheld. It can be done. Mm -hmm. Not. A, it's uh, what does Tom say? It's suboptimal. Yes. Uh, you know, my, my last, well, 2005 until I retired, I carried a weapon mounted pistol light. Um, I was pretty enamored with them in 2005 by about 2010. I had started to see a lot of the shortcomings by 2015. I was like, I don't even understand why we even do this at this point. However, um, the low light training up to that point was just pitiful and it was a good crutch for people that couldn't shoot one handed. 
It really was. I'm yeah. in all in all honesty. Uh, it put muzzles on people that didn't need to have muzzles put on them. Uh, it, it caused a lot of training confusion uh, between we're trying to be stealthy. We don't want to have a light on and to identify or get identified, but we also need to identify a threat. So you end up with training confusion, which is very, very bad and detrimental. Um also, I'm feeling a little pressure here, Lee, because you had Randy Watt on talking current events. Yes. I feel like a schlub when it comes to like Randy Watt is up almost to deity level. And here I am, like, I've just learned to write with a pencil. But uh, anyway, the, uh, the the holster thing was the first thing that that became an issue. And then threat identification and then muzzling people. And we started seeing case after case after case of these things. And I really was like the only time I found it to be extremely useful was if I was hunting for a known bad guy in a building. Like you said, that's a place for a long gun. Unfortunately with, you know, dynamic situations where things evolve and you might have to leave right now and not deploy with a long gun. It had, it had some usefulness there especially in conjunction with a handheld like it, it it was really useful with a hand you know tied in with a handheld uh i never liked the switching systems i never liked the holsters um and now we're being forced into a position where if you want an optic on your gun you got to have a light on it yep uh if you want a light on your gun you're going to have to have an optic on it because holsters the way they dimensionally form them i know a little bit about and it's way easier for them to make one than it is 20 so um so i i don't necessarily think it's a a real detrimental thing for certain applications but it certainly causes you know in the world of limited training time with law enforcement and limited low light training time um it causes a lot of training confusion and that's something I, I didn't coin that term. I don't know where I got it, but training confusion is a thing that happens in the, you know, open world of, of defensive carry. I don't see much use for one at all. Um, If you want to carry one, get after it, but I really don't see the need. Now, I'm not going to be anti-gun light, but I just don't really see where it fits the bill for most people. Because like Tom says, criminals aren't out feeling around in the dark for victims. So you got to see, they got to see you and you got to, so in turn, you're going to hopefully see them. So uh, yeah, that's kind of my two cents on it. You know, there are other holster makers, but Safari Land is really the only game in town when it comes to duty holster uh, I, I know there are others matter of fact i have some u.s duty gear stuff um but you know back in the day when weapon mount lights became a thing you had to specify which lights you had and get the holster that fits your gun in that light combination well economics being what it is form soon gave way to function and safari land figured out well we can make one big gun bucket that encompass you know except all the weapon lights and 
you know, we don't have to make different, you know, three different Glock molds or five different Glock molds and then have to make five different M&P molds and the like. We can make one. And some of those big gun buckets to accommodate the light, there is a noticeable gap where I've taken pistols, unloaded them, put them in my holster, and I can reach down and get, make contact with my finger on the trigger. And I know of numerous instances in which there have been discharges of firearms in the field from foreign objects getting into duty holsters. I, I know the SIG 320 gets a bad rap, uh, in part deservedly so, but I also have seen them in duty holsters, which you can physically see the trigger while the gun is in the holster. That's a holster problem more than it is a gun problem. Yeah. And, my my but, former agency, which I'll tell you is Oklahoma City, uh, we had a couple of young lads wrestling around with a suspect, and I think I've mentioned it somewhere before, but uh, – that Springfield XD, don't judge. Springfield XD discharged in the holster. Um, that was actually a very popular platform at my agency for a long time because we couldn't get Glock 40 caliber guns to run, and those ran pretty stinking well. Yeah. Um, they finally kind of run their service life, and they're going to deauthorize them here in the next year. But um, the way those those uh, TLR, TLR, which was it? The TLR one, the very first full tube, you know, two battery setup. Uh, shows you how long I've been away from it. TLR one. Anyway, I know there was uh, the one hundred, then the two hundred, and then I think it's the three hundred now. Oh, that's the Surefire X series. Okay. All right, Surefire is um, what I carry. So it's... Yeah, and I never cared for the switches on Surefire. I never could yeah. get them to; they were always a little stiff. Um, but the and the other part was the uh, TLR ones. The bezel was user replaceable, as opposed to having to send it in. So I could I could go to the local cop supply store, and if I cracked a bezel or something like that, I could just have them replace it. Whereas the Surefires had to go back to the factory. So. Um, our local cop shop had a couple of loaner X three hundreds that they would rotate through just so you could keep a weapon light, but it left a big, the holster cut on that particular model left a big enough cut that the suspect wasn't even trying to get the cop's gun at just a big tangle of bodies. Yeah. And this kid's hand gets kind of wedged into a holster and it discharges. Yeah. And, uh, the response to that was not these holsters allow your finger into the trigger guard. It was, well, everybody tighten them to the point where you can't get the gun out, Yeah, which absolutely defeated any, um, you know, the, the reality of it. And, you know, as I look back, I realized the agency didn't want to deauthorize half their fleets, guns and holsters. So yeah. the answer was you have to tighten all these screws and do all this stuff. And, it really didn't change the fact you can get a finger in there and discharge it, but you know, echelons above my pay grade. It, but yeah, I think it was the National Park Service that had. It wasn't even a confrontation; it was a medical call, and like one of the flap closure pieces, like they were bent over working on a patient, on a the one of the flap closures, like a med bag, got down into a holster, and somebody stood up. 
and it yep. got got the trigger on the gun, and that's problematic. Yeah, the it, caveat really is for me carrying one, and this is not me being an elitist, but yeah. I always carried a double action first shot gun until I went to bike patrol, yeah. and by having the hood of a like an SLS system of the Safari Land, you you could pull on that double action trigger all day, and unless the holster or unless the gun was improperly seated you couldn't get the hammer to push through that rubber strap it just yeah and i've been i worked and worked and worked because to try to see if i could get even a, a, a single discharge out of it i couldn't i couldn't get the gun to fire with it with the hood engaged so yeah it's a benefit for a da first shot gun but you know that's archaic so <laughs> get, get get you killed in the streets or whatever. There you go. Those things streets they can they can get you when you least expect it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you think we sufficiently covered weapon mounted lights on pistols? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Right. I, I like the Tom Gibbons method. It, it's your butt. Do what you yeah. want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I've got again, and I say I've got no problem with people that just want to carry the light as long as they do it right. Uh, and I'm not saying I never go out without one. Um, I say I, especially I went on a hunt to find duty holster that would accept the optic on the pistol that did not have a weapon mounted light attached to it, and that's got me into some U.S. duty gear holsters, uh, just just because. But if you're going to Safari Land now and you're going to run an optic on your gun, that's going to mean a weapon mounted light as well. And that's just that's just the cash for data for your for the private sector folks. Don't have to worry about such things. You just go get some local Kydex bender to bend what you want, and you're good to go. Um, and of course, they could go into a whole other discussion on optics, but we're going to save that for another time. All right. Um, Alex Sanson, the suited shootist, brought up a topic that we want to delve into a little bit, and it was elitism and disconnect in the training arena and I asked him to elaborate and he basically, you know, came back with like, if, if people that take the opinion, if you can't do my preferred skill to my standard, then you're just not dedicated to this. Or if you're not, uh, it's like, if you can't perform a, a sub three second build drill, then you're just, you're not dedicated to, to carrying a pistol or, you know, if you're not carrying this gun with this piece of equipment on it, you know, if you're not appendix carrying a rolling special, etc., you're just not dedicated. And I just, you know, go back to when Tiffany and Akil were on several episodes back, and they're saying when they're dealing with new students, is they ain't us. And for the most part, I can get away with carrying a full full size gun everywhere I go. For the most part, about one percent of the time I can't. But that's not the case for everybody out there. It's not the case for most people out there. You know, we need to have allowance for that. And folks, it's really not that much of a functional difference. Oh, we'll break the internet again because we we broke the internet couple of years ago on this. There's really not much of a functional difference between a 1.1 second draw 
and a 1.4 second draw or a 1.6 second draw. There's just not that much of a functional difference. There's not that much of a functional difference between a 0.25 split and a 0.4 split. If we're arguing to the right of the decimal, then it's just not a, that big of a deal. Brian? Yeah. I, I, Cooper said something about, you know, becoming enamored with inconsequential mm -hmm. metrics or some, something to that effect. I'll find it in one of the books I just bought at Gunside, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but I really, the elitism in training is, to me, is stomach turning. Yeah. Because it, it involves instructors that are literally catering to about 10,000 people in the entire United States or trying to capture 10,000 people's attention. Mm -hmm. When the reality is, there's over 20 million gun owners and they're a whole lot like my mom, my stepdad, my brother-in-law yeah. that, that might get to the range twice a year, maybe. Um, and I talked to Hearn about this. Uh, I don't know if there's an actual calculated metric of the people in uh, the, the, the past students of Tom Gibbons that have been involved in defensive shootings. And I just equated that with, Oh, well, they've been through uh, 24 hours of basic instructor or something. And he he kind of said, you know, without putting a, a hard number on it, he's like, no, the bulk of those had had four to eight hours of training total. Which, one, speaks really well to Tom's program. Right. But, two, those are normal earth people. Those are the people... I don't worry about the guy that's that's shooting a two five split and telling me that if I can't do a sub two second build drill, I'm like, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. Um, my mom is 65 years old, 66 years old. W what do I tell her? You know, what do, what do I tell her? Well, you have to get familiar with this handgun and I need you to train to this metric, this arbitrary metric that somebody who's trying to sell a class sells. And I think that's just BS. And I, I think we should dispense with it. Um, same with equipment. Well, that's one of the reasons I gave up shooting a Beretta 92 in classes. Because people would fixate on the gun. Whereas if I carry a Glock like everybody else, or you know, three-fourths of the other students, and I shoot it to its potential, then they don't blame their lack of, of ability on my gun. So... You know, and people get dogmatic. It's it all the way back to you even go back to the early API gunsight stuff, and they talk a lot about the 1911 platform. It's a great platform. At that era, it was probably the top of the heap. But there were the bulk of cops in America were carrying revolvers. So you know, know your audience a bit, right? And uh and I'm not knocking API for the time. I mean, they were trying to make everybody aspire to a better standard, which some of where I'll give grace to the people that are really dogging this, this training metrics and all that other stuff is they are trying to make people better, but in doing that, they are eliminating or talking above the people who need it the most. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'll try to dig up the exact quote that uh, I made a while back in conjunction when you and I were breaking the internet over the whole Sub-Zero 
draw thing. I put something out to the effect of the people with no actual experience tend to focus on the metrics and the people with actual experience tend to focus on the mindset rather than the metrics. And, you know, I know the standard response is always, you're just saying that because you can't do it. Nah, all right. Uh, Anybody that wants to compare shooting resumes with me, I'll I'll be happy to do that. Uh, And that's what it immediately boils down to, though. And, you know, you talk to the the best living gunfighters today, and it's like sights I can see, a trigger that, that I can manage and the gun's got to be reliable. Everything else falls to mindset. Yeah. And it's, it's, I equate it to like the shotgun. You go to a one or a two day shotgun class and you spend all this time on shooting drills and reloads and et cetera, with everything that you're going to do, you could possibly do with the shotgun. Okay. Really, all that matters is getting it up and getting it into action and getting that good solid hit because then it's over and done with. with it's the, not going to get the to the proper point. load. Yeah. Right. It, it's not going to get to the point of, you know, who had the best time on a rolling thunder, everything. Now, there is a direct correlation in the enjoyment of a shotgun class and the number of times you run rolling thunder as the instructor. Because I can tell you that. The more I run it, the, the better the students seem to enjoy it um, to the point that I've actually started telling them that's why we're going to run it several more times. And they're like, yeah, it was great. Can we do it again? Uh, it's to learn how to manipulate the shotgun under all the conditions. That's why you do those drills. But if I'm spending all of my time trying to set up my shotgun and my equipment to optimize my performance on Rolling Thunder or some other similar drill, I'm kind of going to a lot of effort or something that's really not going to matter. And by the same token, if I'm trying to set up my handgun to optimize performance on specific metrics, I'm... I don't know how much of that translates. I don't think much of it translates at all. And it's like, I can give you way better scores with a dot on top of the pistol on all the, you know, like anything we're going to run. I'll give you better scores with the dot. I don't know that it functionally means much in the ways that I'm actually going to be using a handgun. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Um, I, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that floating around the industry, and I I think some of it's positive because it gives that that niche of people another you know, what I would call your like uh, your they actually have a word for it in the retail market the super consumer yeah. that's somebody that's going to buy a gun a year a thousand rounds of ammo and attend one training class. They spend about twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a year on gun centric stuff. Super yeah. consumer. Those people, that gives them something to aspire to. Okay, you're missing out on the nineteen million nine hundred thousand nine hundred and whatever people that are out there that 
probably need some level of proficiency way worse than this little sliver of people up here in the corner. Um, and, and I get really tired of like the, you know, the leg hiking and peeing on other instructors and stuff like that. It's like, look, you know, I would, I would rather train, you know, a hundred church ladies a year to get a J frame into action in a reasonable amount of time and score high center chest hits with it every time they press a trigger and safely run it, then I would let me shave a quarter second off your draw. That guy doesn't need help. Right. Um, and that's where I feel like we, we really, we overlook a lot of uh, things like NRA basic or USCCA's basic pistol course. Um, you know, your local gun range, my buddy, Will Andrews puts on some great four hour blocks in Oklahoma city. And I go, he's got, you know, 20,000 students that, you're never going to hear their name. You're never going to see them on YouTube or on Instagram. And a lot of those people just need the proficiency to be able to carry a gun every day. Um, we can argue all we want over this 10th group of maybe eight to 10,000 people. That's fine. Yeah. But I'm kind of over that piece. I don't really care that much anymore. Yeah. So. You know, it kind of goes back to this whole lame argument too, or saying, Cops can't shoot. And that's usually coming from people that are like expert master, B class, A class or higher, or at least, or people who know those people and see them shoot. And they, they, they say, Oh, that's good shooting. And they see some incidents in which a, a cop really didn't perform to that level. All right. I'll, I'll give you that. But if we're going to take a random cross section from the 20 million gun owners out there and take a random cross section from the million cops out there. I would much rather go into a room in a dangerous situation with the cross section of the million cops than I would the 20 million gun owners if we're accepting that number as accurate. Now, if I get, if I get to handpick my kickball team, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's different. Yeah, well, here's one to wrap your head around. Yeah. Cops cops can't shoot. Okay, fine. If you look at the uh, Leocas reports every year, it should be summed up as cops can't drive. Yeah. Because they're not losing too many gunfights. Right. But, man, that Ford Taurus, Ford Explorer, Crown Vic, whatever it is, that's killing them wholesale. Yeah. So, I really... You know, yeah, maybe they don't possess the the highest degrees of marksmanship skill. I get it. Some of them endanger the public more than they endanger the bad guy. But they're not losing their life to gunfire at near the rate they're losing it in car crashes. So I will accept cops can't drive. Cops can't shoot. Mm, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one up to the imagination. The other the other piece of that that a lot of people overlook is. An, an armed citizen may process one violent encounter in their entire life. They may see it and avoid it. Mm-hmm. They may, you know, if they have some degree of listen to your sixth sense or they've had some degree of training, they may be able to avoid that situation. Cops process that situation multiple times a day, every day for years. 
And that's the one advantage that I see that they have over a lot of, uh, oh, just, you know, maybe even, comp- and I don't want to dog on competition shooters, but even that where they have a lot of processing to do all the time. And, you know, it's something you can't discount, but let's just say cops can't drive. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, you know, the typical shooting problem that the cop and the private citizen are going to face is really all that, not all that hard. It's really not that difficult. And quite frankly, a C class or sharpshooter class, IDP, upper level sharpshooter IDPA class has got plenty of skill to handle the typical shooting problem that, that anybody would run into. That whole driving thing, man, that gets in that, you know, we, we, we see it all the time too. You know, private citizens crashing, cars are getting killed. Traffic death is a socially acceptable way to die. Yep. And it's just you know, sad to say that. Just as dead as if someone murdered them. But yeah, yeah, you know, it's and we could engineer our way out of a lot of it but it would cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to go change intersections and go do, do all that kind of stuff. But yeah, there are intersections in the County in which I still currently work that we have a paging system that anytime a wreck with injuries happens, it sends out a text message to all of our phones. And there are like four or five locations that if I see a wreck come up at one of those locations, that's everybody rolls because there's a pretty good chance we've probably got, serious injury or fatality and it's just it's the way it is well and here's something to think about those people drive every day yep, yep. you know you might get one invite one violent encounter in your entire life maybe yeah. two if you're yeah. just a bad decision maker right. you drive every single day so the yeah. law of probabilities catches you there i have two great fears in life and i will publicly disclose that one of them is one of them is I am deathly afraid of heights. And then it, huh? it doesn't have to even be really high to, for, to qualify to trigger my fear of heights. Uh, but I don't have a problem flying. And like some you know, have been asked, like, Matt, you, you, you're so scared of heights. But how, you, how can you handle getting in an airplane? It's professionally maintained. It's being operated by a professionally trained, held to a very high standard pilot with a crew. And once we get up in the air at that cruising altitude, the only other people up there are those same people. Yet, I've been on a two-lane road with nothing separating me from someone hurtling towards me at 65, 70 miles an hour. And, you know, a Honda Civic with a donut tire on it. <laughs> you know, and a toward... piece of a piece yeah. of paint. <laughs> yeah. And the one of the fenders is flapping and dragging behind it. And the only thing separating us is a four inch strip of paint. Okay. The flying doesn't scare me. I actually kind of feel at ease up there versus driving cross country. Uh for one for the fact that I had, you know if I didn't have to deal with airports and the like, then I'd fly everywhere I'd go. Well, my two fears are heights and flying, period. And I used to jump out of planes, so that'll tell you something. 
Yeah, I, I never will publicly reveal what my second great fear is because I work with cops and I know what would happen. Uh, we, I, we could get into phobias like dentures and some other stuff, but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I worked with a with a cop one time that let it be known that she had a phobia of fish, and oh, it was horrible. It was Ooh. absolutely horrible, horrible. The stuff, the places that fish turned up. Oh gosh, sharks, yeah. man. Yeah. All right. Well, if anybody's still with us, as we've been rambling on for a while here, tell everybody about the Revolver Roundup. How'd it go? Well, this was my third attendance to uh, Gunsight Academy to the Pat Rogers Memorial Revolver Roundup. Um, it's the weekend before Thanksgiving every year. I went the first year as a student and, uh, Daryl was kind enough to invite me back year two and three as a, uh, as a presenter. So, uh, great time. It's, I took my dad this year and a couple of friends of mine from the East coast that, uh, you know, uh, Michael and Jason that, uh, and then Michael Lessman from DSM safety. I got a big Airbnb and we all camped together and it was just a good, it was a good fellowship. It was like a dude weekend. Uh, I told my dad, he was fretting over what holster, what gun, what ammo. And I said, man, this is a great hang where you're also at gun site and you get to shoot cool revolvers. <laughs> like just don't, don't sweat it. Um, it, I think we're already about halfway through ticket sales and they just opened yesterday. Uh, 20, and 2024 event. For 2024. Uh, that event has grown like wildfire the last two years. First year I went, I think there were 70. The next year there were 90. And this year there were over 100 attendees. Um, and, you know, when gun sites parking capacity starts getting stretched, you go, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> This is pretty wild. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's a great time to do some historical deep dives on, on revolvers, which also correlates to where did we come from in training, uh, which also correlates with here's gun sight. And I've said it before competition or defensive shooting, all roads pretty well lead back to gun sight at, at some point. Um, if we're talking modern training, right. Um, so it's a great event. Uh, it, it, it brings together a lot of people that know each other in the virtual space. Um, and we get to like open some people's eyes to like vintage police training courses and shooting courses, some of which make you realize Man, even the mediocre dudes back in the day could run a wheel gun, right? Uh, some of those revolver courses, you're like, man, this would be tough with an auto, uh, like Bakersfield or, or uh, you know, the LAPD qual, even the Oklahoma City qual for years with a with a six shot revolver is a it, it can be a pretty spicy or event. Uh, so. A lot of history, a lot of uh, a lot of really cool guns, a lot of priceless pieces that are just, you know, setting in some guy's holster, uh -huh. uh, and, and a lot of good, uh, 
good fellowship. I mean, everybody gets done with class, goes and hangs out on the mess deck and talks about, you know, old cop shootings and cop training. And uh, we had some guests there that this year that were uh, Mike Wood, the revolver guy that wrote the new hall, the, the book about new hall. He was there, gave me a signed copy of his book. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and my dad has not returned it to me yet because he hasn't put it down. Um, but you have generations there of people that started out in the military law enforcement with revolvers uh, that never really quite got trained the way they should have been to guys that were really proficient with a revolver in that revolver to auto transition time to guys like myself that we came in on the tail end of the revolvers and had to learn them by default. Uh, so man, it's just, you put all of that knowledge under the mess deck at gun site and you, the admission alone is worth going just for the barbecue. Right. So, uh, and, and I don't think we've done a good job of saying we start Friday, the Friday before with a barbecue, we got Rob Leahy from Simply Rugged Holsters, Sam Dizonia from Wilderness, Nancy Stevens from Tough Products. Uh, they're all there supporting the event. And, you know, you can, you can buy holsters that you can only see online, right? It's uh, uh, stuff like that or support equipment that you can actually put your hands on. You know, our, our mutual bud, Mark Fricky brings like a hundred revolvers with different types of speed loading devices and all that. So there's just no other place you can get that much hands on that fast with uh, revolver knowledge. And it is the event that I really look forward to all year. Uh, I love TACCON. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying TACCON. That is a great event. This event is just, it's as much of a hang as it is training. So, um, you know, TACCON is very training centric. This is a little more casual um, and a little more historical. But, uh, but yeah, this, this event, I, I'm already looking, planning my class for next year and, and my class is. But, uh, and this year I taught um, with Caleb Giddings again. We got set at the kids' table because we're the youngest two instructors there. And uh, I did a block on police pistol combat or police pistol competition or practical police course. I've seen it published all those different ways in the NRA manual. So I don't know what it's even really called, uh, but I did a little deal on that. He did a deal on IDPA, um, two very different disciplines that have a lot of overlap. Um, and then I did a block on one-handed shooting it was just one-handed marksmanship with a revolver and it, it went really, really well. Um, as always, there's a, a YouTube video that I made a couple of them that I made that I launched on the, uh, American fighting revolver YouTube channel, which supplements the Patreon channel. So tons of well, fun, man. I'm going to hold up my everyday carry belt EDC belt company hat here. And say this stepping on toes that I'm about to do is sponsored by the EDC Belt Company. Perfect. Uh, All right. Take a guy, since you mentioned him, a guy like Mark Fricky. Mm -hmm. 
Mark was back. Mark was doing this stuff in the golden age of the revolver. Mark was part of the revolver to semi-auto transition. Mark was part of the adoption of pistol-mounted optics and the developing of the training methodologies and the light that go along with that. That's a guy that's been around and been relevant through three major paradigm shifts of training and equipment. That's a guy that you need to be listening to. But to go back to like one of the early things we discussed tonight, and Alex Henson's topic that brought up the elitism and stuff out there, because he's not trendy on the YouTube, on the Instagram, you know, out there shooting these drills that, you know, he's got this signature drill that if you can do this and everything else like that, I'm not going to pay attention to listen to him. The guy is solid gold. Everything that comes out of him about training. He's like, when I started delving into the pistol mounted optic and everything, you know, he brought up the point of, well, you know, we saw increased scores when we went from revolvers to semi-autos because people went through training to start carrying the semi-auto. Pretty soon it regressed back to where it had been. What are Just we seeing? More bullets. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> seeing the same thing with the pistol mounted optics, although the sighting system being that much easier to see and use. I'm not seeing that much of a regression drop off from total scores, but I am seeing people that go through a transition course and then that don't keep up with their training, come back out. And sometimes they struggle the next time they shoot or get into a call course and that kind of, okay, now I got to be on this. I got to be practicing my stuff dry. Um, you know, those are the people that you want to listen to. Those people have been around for decades doing this that have seen all the trends, that have seen all this dumb stuff come and go. Those are the people that back. should be because those are the people who should be the elite. Yeah, one one would think. Uh, yeah, and one of the things with Mark is much like Tom, he's seen those trends come and go and come back. Um. But he's in the third turn, uh, yeah. just like Tom is in the third, almost the fourth turn now. Yep. Uh, you know, back to, and, and I'm not dogging completely on optics. You and I both went to Eric Gelhaus's school, which was, I think, is probably the industry standard for how to teach people to run a weapon mounted optic, yeah. but, or a pistol mounted optic. But the, the thing I'm seeing that, I got lambasted for about four years ago. And now I'm having people in the training industry go, okay, Nostradamus. Cause I said, you know, when you train these people up, if you don't implement a sustainment program, they're going to be worse than they were before. Yep. And a lot of my pizos, I said, you know, weapon mounted lights were a great idea. How many weapons do you check in a weapons inspection that have dead batteries and or no batteries in them? And now you're relying on that for their primary sighting system. That's not a good combination. Um, and especially if we don't implement sustainment, we're going to see massive increases in scores. We're going to see massive increases in qualifications. Well, give me a shooter and give me an eight hour block and 400 rounds of ammunition. I'll make them good with a BB gun. I don't it, like they'll be as best as they've ever been with a red rider. 
give me 18 months of never having them touch that gun, but for a 25 round qualification, they'll be worse than they were when they showed up the first time. So that's where, that's where I think the rubber meets the road on the agency side, on the individual side, the average dude that trains the average super consumer, you give him a weapon mounted light and an optic, he's going to train with it. You give the super cop, the range junkie, um, Bruce Cartwright had a very, very uh, non PC version way of saying a gun guy, but uh, you give that guy, the dude that's, uh, you know, the range is his home away from home. It doesn't matter what sighting system you give that guy. It doesn't matter what handgun you give that guy. It doesn't matter what holster you give that guy. He's going to run it until he can't mess up with it. But, you know, but there's 20 million other people out there that that just need to know which end the projectile comes out of. And that, you know, just because it says 357 Magnum doesn't mean you have to shoot those out of it, right? That's the consumer public we should be concerned with, but... Yeah, um, my soon-to-be former agency, our range is shut down right now. Mm-hmm. Um, not for, like, anything bad. Uh, we actually shoot on a range of some private property, and there's some timber being cut off of the property. And I understand the timber guys don't want to be down there cutting timber on the property while we're shooting. Got it. So we've been borrowing ranges from other agencies to you know, finish up our annual qualifications and stuff. In the last month, I've run two rifle class slash rifle quals and had people show up that had dead batteries and their optic on the patrol rifle. And I'm sitting there thinking, one, why are you betting your life on this equipment when you're not making sure that it's functional? And I'm thinking number two is, Okay, obviously we have patrol corporals and sergeants that aren't doing equipment inspections on their people. And you know, that that's that's how simple it's, is it to change a battery in an optic? It well, depending well, for, on the optic, it can be yeah, complex. Well, for the pistol mounted optic it can get complex, but for like a aimpoint pro. Righty tighty lefty loosey. Take it out, put the battery in there. And we provide the batteries for them. Now, had we been at our range in the building there, I've got a box of batteries. But I wasn't at my range. And I didn't have that. You know, that would have been something we'd have got everybody out. All right, everybody check. Optics good. Oh, your battery's dead. Let me let's go grab a battery, put it in there. Tisk, 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 tisk. Now let's roll. And I remember last year or the year before, um, started to do a rifle class slash qual and had to go, hey, my optics not working. And so when's the last time you changed your battery? And his answer was they told me the battery would last five years. Okay, that doesn't answer my question. Well it does, but that's not so when was the last time you changed your battery? I asked it again, thinking maybe you didn't understand. And he gave me the same answer. Oh, they told me the battery would last five years. Which says he's never changed the battery in his optic. Well, I bought the rifles. 
I bought the optics. I knew how old they were. I said, so this is the original battery that came with this optic and has been on your rifle the entire time this rifle and optic have been in. Well, yeah, but they said it would last five years. So how long did it sit on the shelf? <laughs> yeah. I tell you what I do when I put a new optic on a gun or something like that, I throw the battery that came with it away and I put a brand new Duracell in it. And then I yeah. changed the Duracell, which reminds me next this Friday's battery changing day for pistol mounted optics. So it's. Yeah, that's. And for the individual level, what does it matter? Yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, but uh, at the agency level, it's critical. Yeah. And, you know, it, that's where I think we have a lot of delineation in the training world is, you know, a lot of people view it through the LE lens or they view it through the mill lens mm -hmm. or they view it through the competition lens or the, the armed citizen lens. And it's like somewhere in the middle of all of those is what meets your needs. And most people, I'll just say it. Most people that train never really identify what their needs are. Yep. They just don't, they go to, you know, training session after training session and it ends up, well, I didn't do so hot. Well, maybe if I did what the instructor does and I got this pistol with this optic yeah. and they never really de determined for themselves what that looks like. Um, you know, when I was a full-time cop, I carried my duty gun off duty. Um, just mainly because I didn't want to qualify with a whole bunch of guns, but now that I'm not, and I can carry whatever I want, man, a snub revolver in my pocket and maybe a second snub or a, a compact auto fits the bill. But that's 25 years of combined knowledge and training and experience that go behind that to know what I can do with those platforms. And that's not, if I'm teaching average Joe citizen, that's probably not what's going to fit their bill. It might be. But if I'm so hedged into, well, you know, if you can't shoot a, you know, a, a bill drill in 1.8 seconds, then sorry, I, you know, or, or if you, if you can't plan the right stage, or if you don't have a this or a that or a weapon mounted light or, you know, and, and that's where another place I think that the instructor community falls short is, you know, don't try to make carbon copies of yourself. Just don't. You know, and teach one of the few things that's different in my law enforcement classes from my private citizen classes. This is one of the very few things. Is the amount of time that I spend on reloads in the law enforcement classes is much higher than the amount of time I spend on the private citizens. And I tell the cops the reason for that is not because I think reloads are that important, is that they're having to shoot the scored course of fire that puts such a penalty on if you don't get it done in time in the specified amount of time that you lose so many points on the qual and some of them are struggling to get the points right. that they need. For a private citizen, I'm not saying I don't run them through scored courses of fire. I just get to pick it and I don't don't put one that puts an emphasis on reloads. Because yeah. it's just not going to happen. We see very few, if yeah. any, 
Um, and, you know, I, I was looking back through some of the archives and a lot of the defensive shootings I'd seen that were involved in reload were an off-duty cop. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so I'm not saying you won't have to. You need to know how to do it. But do you need to spend an inordinate amount of time speed reloading your, right. you know, G19? Probably not. If you've launched 15, 16 rounds into the public, it might be time to turn and run. Uh, you know, <laughs> Whatever you're doing is not working. It ain't working. Move on. But uh, but there again, there's always the outliers, the anomalies, and we need to be prepared for those. But, um, you know, if I'm teaching somebody that's very competition-centric, it's like, yeah, you need to be able to stuff your gun before you move or as you're moving. But anyway, that, that all goes to, um, you know, one of the, the things I've, I've found recently is, is just trying to meet students where they're at and not where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that, that's the thing is what is relevant to their world, to the student's world. If the student is working a white collar type job where if they get discovered carrying a firearm at their job, they face rash professional consequences on that. They're probably going to go with something that's much easier to hide than a full size gun. And we need to have the ability as instructors to teach them for that. Okay. Oh my gosh. That pistol isn't going to perform as well on the metrics as a gun that I set up specifically yeah, for a drill. Right? Yeah. It's just, I can game my gun gear. I can. I've gotten to the point like when, when I teach a private citizen rifle class, I've gotten where I make sure I wear blue jeans to teach and not even anything tactical looking pan or anything like that. I wear blue jeans and I run my spare magazine is in my back pocket. Yeah. Twice, twice in the last year teaching with bulky. I've had, I've had a student come up and go, uh, or, or a host or somebody go, Hey, we're going to go down here. We need to put our gear on. Do you guys need to put your gear on? We've got a safe area. And we're like, we showed up with it. This is way. This is how we're gonna roll. Oh, I didn't even know you were carrying. That's the point. Yep. But uh, you know, it, it, I I mentioned to uh, a friend of mine at a dinner. We had a little private kind of meeting of the minds uh, a few months ago, and one of the one of the kids that was there said, you know, he asked a bunch of us. He said, "What's a big red flag for you, or how do you and I said, if an instructor shows up without a gun on, that's a problem. Especially if you're taking a defensive yeah. shooting course. If they show up and they don't have their gun on, you should probably just go, well, we'll, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones. But but that's genuinely, that to me is like a huge red flag. Now, if it's, hey, we're teaching a, a, a duty style deal and I came in and so carrying a gun and I need to put on a duty, I get that. Uh, or I'm, I'm taking a competition class and somebody's got to put on a competition rig. But if I'm taking a defensive handgun class and my instructor goes, excuse me, I have to go down the line and put on my gear. 
That's a red flag. That's a huge one to me. Um, yeah, just personal thoughts, but you know, we- I saw the interview that Jim Scouton did with Jeff Cooper twenty something years ago. I saw it again this week. And it was funny, Cooper was one of the founders of Ipsic. So he knows why Ipsic was invented. All right. And he made a comment, and I'm paraphrasing here. So Shango, so please don't get upset if I don't get the quote exactly right. Cooper talked about kind of basically the people that shoot the matches and everything and like them put their gear away and leave without, you know, not caring again. So it's like they don't even understand the purpose of the exercise. Right. And, and why, uh, yeah. you know, this whole thing with all the competition was a, was initially a laboratory to test tactics and methods. And of course, eventually the game side of us took over. Now you're shooting these guns with these, you know, compensators and, you know, frame mounted optics and all that kind of stuff. And then that's why. IDPA came off of that and formed again. And now we kind of seen that same trend chase and IDPA. And it's folks don't get us wrong. The gun games are fine. There's nothing wrong with going out and having a fun and you can improve your skills to it that way or keep your skills fresh. But that's not the be all end all of it. You know, I'm not going to choose my carry gun based on the rules in IDPA or because of what division it fits into a NIPSIC or USPSA, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And my last, uh, I think the last time I shot a quasi formal match shot with my carry gear and I placed like in a hundred man field, I placed like 12th or 18th or something. I went, you know, if I can do that against guys shooting comps and optics and pistol caliber carbines because they were there. I think I'm, I I don't think I'm going to get killed in the streets today, you know, but who knows? I could get, somebody could get lucky. Yeah. And Uh, I used to be amazed back when I shot matches regularly and I was shooting GSSF and I was shooting IDPA guys that I couldn't touch on the IDPA range because of all the movement and all that kind of stuff. Couldn't get within 20 seconds of me in a GSSF match when it's stand in one place and deliver when it was just about the shooting skill, I could trounce them when it was the movement, all the other kind of stuff. I just couldn't stay with them. Now you can, in your mind, decide which one of those is most important. And I'm not going to argue with you in the, in the audience over that. Um, but yeah, it's probably somewhere in the middle. My, uh, my business partner in the belt company, he shoots GSSF like every weekend and you know, he's gotten to the point that those Glock 1099s uh, from winning so many guns, they start to stack up. But uh, he set out and he said, you know, this is a sport that I can compete in as an armed citizen where I get a lot of gun handling, a lot of gun manipulation. um, And there's not the, you know, <laughs> there's not the max, I call it the max Michelle factor, mm-hmm. which is you train like an Olympic athlete every single day yeah. to be able to shave an eighth of a second off your movement from box to box. And, and, and I get that. Right. Um, 
to me, I really, I really like the GSSF matches. I, I haven't shot any. I've sponsored several, but, um, but I think that's a great place to test your gun, your gear, uh, stuff like that, and and have an environment where you're not at the, well, I can't run as fast as that guy, or I've got two hip replacements, I can't move as fast, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, I I think those are a, a, a sound a sound deal. Same as Steel Challenge. I think that's a really good one as well. But IPSC, USPSA, IDPA, they're always going to be the gamer. There always is. You and, get the same pressure testing benefit that you get in GSSF that you would get in USPSA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stand on a line in front of 20 people and shoot your gun for score when everybody else is watching. Yeah. That to me is, is where, um, the skill comes in and the ego either has to die or it takes a brutal death. Right. But, uh, but you were asking me about the, uh, uh, revolver roundup. And then we toddled into another rabbit hole. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Fricky. There you go. Well, before we get out of here tonight, uh, tell everybody about the American fighting revolver. So that is a project that Daryl bulky and I have talked about for the last couple of years. Um, just kind of in a roundabout way. And I've had to learn to do a lot of audio production and video production and things like that. And we kept getting uh what do they call it? Zucked where any content we were putting out on the free social media was getting squashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with YouTube. Yeah. So we started the American fighting revolver Patreon. It's $5 a month. And it allows us to get content out that's not squashed by algorithms. Um, And even the content that we've put out that's free, even on Patreon, has gotten squashed in the algorithms for uh, the ability to view it. So putting it behind a paywall, for some reason, that doesn't, for now, it doesn't uh, get uh, smashed in, in algorithmic stuff. So... Uh, we started that and we're, we're doing every week we profile either a historical revolver or configuration. Uh, our last one was, was on kind of vanilla guns, guns that we carry every day. And surprisingly, it got a massive amount of traction. I was like, Hey, like two episodes ago, we did a registered Magnum and people liked it, but people really love seeing the J frames we carry every day. So there's that. Uh, I've got a, a YouTube channel. It's AFR official uh, at AFR 350. It's AF, AF Revolver 357 at YouTube. Uh, I put up some videos that I produced. Uh, Melanie Bulky was generous enough to devote a little camera time and make all the instructors look pretty. So I put up a, a roll of that. I just did it, launched a a sponsor video today. I didn't catch all the sponsors, but most of them that we had video content of like Taurus, Tough Products, Wilderness, uh, Simply Rugged, and uh, Ransom Rest of all people. They were there. And we got to do some video rolls of them. I'll be at SHOT Show filming a, a little bit of content on a revolver that is getting ready to hit the market that I can't talk a whole lot about. But all my buddies asking me about what snub revolver they should buy. I keep saying, just wait till January. Just wait till January. 
uh, or, or buy one now and buy one in January. Uh, but anyway, I got, we, we were involved in another deal and on our road trip for this, um, last revolver manufacturer project we were involved in, I was like, man, we have between us enough revolvers that if we did one a week, we could do the next seven years without ever having to buy another revolver again. So let, and we're profiling historic revolvers, uh, historic modifications, modern revolvers, uh, revolvers that have some provenance, um, and trying to get some of that history documented uh, before all of us get too old. And yeah. oddly enough, the demographic that subscribes the highest to our Patreon is 35 to 45, which I think is, is perfect because that's people that can carry the torch after we were, we're gone. So yeah. um, it's American fighting revolver at Patreon. Uh, we don't have it set up for a one year subscription yet. So it's five bucks a month, but um, I think you get you get uh, a video and an article that are behind the paywall, and then anything that's kind of like centric to the industry, like uh, the revolver roundup. That stuff comes out free, and it links in through there, and it goes to YouTube and some other places. But um, yeah, we we launched that, and it's been pretty successful thus far and i'm really excited about it because i got daryl so motivated now that it is unbelievable um we had a pile of guns and we were sorting through these guns for which ones are we going to do a video on and a photo reel and all this and talk about it and talk about the provenance and at one point i said daryl you realize we have like a half a million dollars sitting in the floor just in gun cases this is awesome so, um, and it's just stuff we've accumulated through the years being revolver enthusiasts, um, got plans for, uh, a podcast that's going to go behind the paywall and, uh, which brings me to, I still do the off duty on duty podcast. I've slowed down to like one a month because I caught the crud you caught and I've had life's been busy, um, also, the belt company is kind of changing gears right now. Uh, that's it'll it'll be the same. It's just I'm not going to be as heavily involved in it. So um, that's getting ready to unfold in January. It'll you won't notice any difference. The website will be a little modernized, but uh, but yeah, the the American Fighting Revolver and just the response has been overwhelming. Um, I'm really enthusiastic about it. We're going to have some merchandise after the first of the year, some t-shirts and hats and patches and things like that. And uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. And if you find you can Google Pat Rogers revolver roundup and, and the video will come up and you can see what you missed out on this November and what you need to jump in on next November. Um, and Daryl and I, oddly enough, we have gotten a lot of demand to come out and teach revolver classes, stuff that we kind of put on the shelf and uh -huh. thought, you know, maybe someday when they ban all the magazines, then it'll be relevant. I'm, I say that tongue in cheek, by the way. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've done a couple of revolver classes. He's done a couple this last year. And the response has been like, 
I'm sorry. We'll come back next year and we'll get you in one. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's uh, I'm doing all the media production work for it. And uh, yeah, there'll be a presser coming at shot show tune in because uh, there's a gun being released at shot show that I just wish I could talk about, but I can't. And, uh, and it is cylindrical in nature about all i can say about it uh, we're only but, two months we're only two months away yeah and uh i've got shot shows my next big my next big deal and i'm gonna film probably four or five videos out there and then uh some of them will be on youtube some of them some of them will be beyond behind the paywall but uh the paywall just allows us to bring better content that doesn't you know, it doesn't trigger the Facebook and Instagram smash. So, uh, ballistic testing and shooting and training tips and things like that, that just get crushed on the open social media. So yeah, I'm sorry and if the, I seem a little enthusiastic here, but. The, and the other great benefit of that is that if people are paying for it, you're not going to get the people that are typically aren't going to get the people that just drive by and take their random pot shots and they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And it actually has a chat function. So there's a, and I monitor it. I monitor it. Daryl monitors it. And, uh, Melanie bulky super G she monitors it. And it's unbelievable. The amount of positive comments you get versus, well, that's stupid. I'd never do It's, Hey man, who's got load data for a 44 special? Cause I, Hey, I'll hit you offline. Send me your email address. It's a real sharing of ideas versus a, you know, somebody comes in and carpet bombs the place with doo-doo and then leaves, you know, it's so, um, that was one of the things that really surprised me, um, was just the, just the chat forum in Patreon for our channel. Um, it's been overwhelmingly positive. I, there's no buttery, so to speak. There's no self-appointed expertise. Um, it's just a really good place to share ideas and, and uh, nobody's going to say a charter. I wouldn't carry that. You know, I mean, it, it's a little more um, niche specific, I guess you would say. And, and uh, a lot of fun. I mean, I, I got on there today and somebody was asking me, you know, Hey, my girlfriend wants a, a revolver. Um, you know, what do you guys recommend? And the comments were, well, if you don't carry a 44 mag, you'll get killed in the streets. It was like, Hey, Ruger LCRs are available. And you know, if you shoot those with a downloaded round, it's, it's a, not a bad option. And the LCR 22 carries eight rounds, you know? So, um, yeah, it's been like, it's been refreshing having been in the gun space for about five years and just, slogging through the negativity to see that come to come to fruition so yeah i'm excited about it and uh it's rapidly turning into a full-time job which i kind of <laughs> like um uh, and and it's stuff i'm passionate about and, I, uh -huh. and uh i took down my patreon i had the eastern training and consulting patreon and i found out really quickly that the bulk of the content people wanted was like me tearing revolvers apart and diagnosing them. And I was like, that really doesn't fit into what I started this for. So 
with Daryl, it just kind of was a natural fit. So, um, man, we're having a blast with it and, you know, got a couple of good lavalier mics and funniest thing. If you guys watch the first video, we did five takes on that with a script. And I finally, I threw the script away and I went in five, four, three, two, one. And we just went and it was like, Hey, that was easy. We actually do this pretty well. So there's a little secret sauce that nobody knew. Yeah. So yeah, it's fun stuff. I'm sorry if my propeller is spinning a little hard. I really like, um, really enjoying that and open enrollment. Uh, you mentioned something about open enrollment classes we're doing this year. We're working on a revolver symposium uh, because a lot of guys on the East coast can't make it out to gun site. So we're going to try to do a mini one for next year um, and, and see how, see what the response is and, and try to pass some of that knowledge to uh, the next generation of people that maybe can't take a five day journey to gun site. Maybe, you know, and I don't know that we're not going to sell gunsight out here in the next week or two. So, um, so it's looking like that's probably going to happen two days with four instructors and, and four, four hour blocks. And, um, we're really going to try to push for that this year. And, uh, and other than that, Daryl and I got a, a huge demand for, revolver open enrollment training so uh stay tuned it'll all go through the american fighting revolver patreon and youtube and and uh working on a social media page and some other stuff so um yeah it's good stuff man it's really good i'm really enthusiastic about it well good good all right uh folks as far as my open enrollment right now the answer is pretty simple i don't have any um, I will be finishing up this, my second graduate class in this program. I think we have to have everything turned in by the 14th of December. I think I've got three more summits that I've got to get done between now and then. And, uh, I'm unsure as yet as to whether or not I'm going to enroll in the spring. Cause with the new job, I don't know how all that's going to work out. I'll be talking with my new bosses about that, um, uh, in the coming weeks. And so I'm not scheduling anything until I know, for one, uh, if I'm going to be enrolled in the spring, I'm not going to have time from January to May to be teaching open enrollment classes. Um, and then, as I guess said, I'm starting the new job. So I will have zero hours of leave come Friday morning. And so I'm going to have to build some of that back up. Now, one thing with the job, new job is I will have comp time that I can use. I have to get do stuff, so I'm probably not going to be getting out of the southeast much for the next little while uh, for well, teaching purposes. So, Lee, yeah. I, I would like to commend you that this is the first episode I've heard in a while you didn't rip on John Hearn. Uh, which brings me to my next question: Is there going to be a cognitive conclave this year? That is dependent on all of the all of the above, as far as like. Um, a new job and ability to travel for that or we just do it here again and whether or not I've got the grad school thing going on so it's uh, if I'm able to go in the spring I finish the program in spring because it's only a four class program it's a graduate certificate it's not a full blown degree um, so I just 
I hate to quit in the middle of it. And as one wise person told me years ago, the time's going to pass whether you do it or not. And I don't want to be sitting there in May going, you know what, you'd be done right now if you had just taken these other two classes. And so I can't imagine myself not doing it, but I need to clarify some things before I do. Um, and there's always time to pick on her. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's one episode in a row. I didn't hear a, a, a cheap shot at her. So, well, you know, the, I took a cheap shot at him yesterday on my phone. So I, I did have it out of my system. So good. And I, I will, um, this is my shameless plug for John Hearn. If you haven't been to his, who, who wins, who loses and why lecture, well worth the time and money investment. That was far and away one of the best. And I enjoy lectures that are one entertaining and two very data filled, but digestible data. He does a fantastic job. So yeah. Good on you, John Hearn. He will actually tell you everything he knows. He will. When he gets done, he's like, it's all out. Everything he knew, everything he knows, he told you. Yep. And, and it is very good. So. I concur. And folks, uh, Brian, thank you for, for jumping in last second tonight to help put together an episode. I understand. Well, you're retired, but you've got a whole lot of stuff going on now. And uh, I know your time is important. And to the audience, we know that your number one asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.